Have you heard about the new MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle? The MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle is the easiest, most advanced nozzle ever, protecting you from the dangers of diesel exhaust fumes. With its patented flex magnet technology, the Pro Nozzle easily attaches with one hand from a standing position, can snap on from any angle, and fits flush to the apparatus, saving a ton of space. And MagnaGrip is the only exhaust removal system that offers a true 100% seal. For free grant assistance and to learn more, go to magnagrip.com. Good evening out in Blog Talk Radio Land. This is Mike Dugan coming to you from a rainy, damp, very chilly, wet, cold uh, New York. Uh, but it's been the winter of our non-discontent because we haven't had any measurable <laughs> snow on Long Island yet. It's unbelievable. And I've got to say, personally, I take credit for it because I guaranteed it when I totally rebuilt my snowblower this fall. I put a new pull cord on it, changed the spark plug, changed the belts, put new uh, clutch and um, the auger cables, took the augers apart, greased the whole thing. And I said to my wife, if I take this whole thing apart, we are never going to have any snow. And she handed me my toolbox and said, get out in the shed. And so Mike uh, <laughs> and I are joining you tonight. And uh, as always, I'm with my partner, Mike Galliano from Seattle, and it's kind of a little strange. We haven't been with you in a while because our last show was scheduled for um, early January, and all three of us who are on this radio show right now tonight were in Collinsville, Oklahoma, um, sending our brother Bobby Halton um, home and being there to support the families. And uh, in doing so, uh, we got to share the camaraderie which, again, we will do at FDIC uh, in April as Bobby gets the well-deserved Lifetime Achievement Award at FDIC. But I just wanted to um, say to everyone, uh, I hope that when my time comes and it's time for me to go uh, meet our maker and uh, see what the other side is, I hope that I can have 
uh, a third, a quarter of the impact that Bobby Halton had on the American fire service. Um, I miss my brother dearly. I was talking to him about books. I want to go call him a lot and say, hey, did you see this? Did you read that? Did you see this? And unfortunately, I can't. But uh, I just want to say to Bobby, because I know he's listening, that thank you for your friendship, your love, and um, your loyalty. I miss you, brother. Go ahead, Mike. Well, I certainly echo those sentiments, and there's there's no easy way around it. Uh, Bobby has left a incredible void, you know, in the in the professional landscape. You know, such a magnificent voice, such a passionate voice for what's good and right and true in our calling, and he carried, I think, the mantle of leadership so just so majestically, man. It's hard for me, Mike. Even like I'm here, little people will post little video clips and little things and that, and it's hard for me to hear that voice even that I'm so used to being such a part of my, part of the soundtrack of my professional life, you know, and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing my friend again. Um, he's going to be healthy and whole and uh, it'll be good to catch up. And um, it was a wonderful, I felt like a wonderful send off with the family. Um, just father Cardi just did such a majestic job. And we were there with so many just wonderful representatives of the fire service from all over the country and I know, Michael, I know the prep is going on right now for FDIC. And, boy, folks, if you if you haven't uh, made your plans to come, this is definitely a show to consider making the trip. There's going to be a real, I think, celebratory, just, ah, man, just celebration of what Bobby meant to us all and what he meant to fire engineering and to FDIC, but what he meant to us personally and what he meant to the – the extension of the craft and dreaming big dreams and what the, what this incredible calling can truly be about. And um, I'm looking forward to all the things that, that are, that our new boss, chief David Rhodes from uh, retired from Atlanta fire. Uh, he's running right alongside our editor, Diane Rothschild. And I can't wait to see all the things that they have in store. And I think appropriately, it's going to be with a look back and a celebration of all the things that Bobby Halton did for the fire service and for FDIC and fire and engineering in particular. Yeah, and all I can say is I miss my friend. I really do. I, I just miss him. I miss, I miss texting with him. You know, um, Mike, you and I and, and another friend of ours and Bobby, we had a, a fun little text stream going there that, got me through COVID and got me through some of the political and social, um, I don't want to say it, the insanity that's going on. And uh, it was fun to just be able to decompress and send some funny things to friends. And I look back on that, that text stream now with uh, just real gratitude and thankfulness. I wish we could add to it. I wish I could bust his chops some more, Michael, and give him grief and <laughs> tease him about, about all the things that, uh, that friends talk about and that tease about. So, uh, yeah, this this radio show, it's our, our first one since it obviously happened, and obviously we dedicate it to both Mike and I's buddy, Bobby. And, you know, one, one positive, Mike, I will say this, since i got to bust his chops a little bit. Um, the one positive about Bobby being in heaven is we do not have to worry about him coming on the radio show and us having to adjust our time 
because <laughs> he, he because he was taking half of it. He can he can uh, he can talk to to Saint Augustine, and uh, he can talk to Peter, and he can talk to all the other folks up there. He can uh, regale Tommy Brennan and some of our other friends um, with with all his stuff, and we can get on with our radio show. Sound good? Sounds good. And I just would love one more time to just hear Dugan. You're an asshole. Yeah. And my friend Bobby said that to me quite frequently. Uh, I, I love busting his chops. But uh, I would love to hear that once again. And I think you're right. He's sitting with uh, with Ray Downey, with Alan Dunasini, with Tommy Brennan, and they're all sitting down, and it's just, uh, it's all good times. So God bless you, brother. We miss you. So, I just wonder, bro, I, I just wonder, yeah. I just look at the Lord, just looking at Brennan and Bruno and, and, and Bobby and, and all those guys and just wondering, man, how do you get a word in edgewise with these guys? You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. It's fighting for airtime. It's like when you and I, when Bobby and I used to joke about teaching a class together. When we taught, um, when we taught American Command together, we used to joke that the, the students all fell asleep. Because we stole all the oxygen out of the room. <laughs> so, yep. So uh, we're going to talk tonight to our dear friend Tom Merrill. Uh, Tommy Merrill is a 40-year fire department veteran and serves with the Schneider Fire Department, which is located in Amherst, New York, which is a first-ring suburb of the city of Buffalo. He served 26 years as a department officer, including 15 years in the chief officer ranks. He was chief of department from 2007 to 2012, and he currently serves as a fire commissioner of the Snyder Fire District. Tom has conducted various fire service presentations throughout the country, including at FBIC, the National Volunteer Fire Council Training Summit, VCOS, and other many other many other national, state, and regional conferences. His popular presentation is the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. And it is based on a series of articles he has written for fire engineering regarding the development and maintaining a professional reputation in the volunteer fire service. In addition, Tom regularly hosts his own podcast sponsored by fire engineering titled the professional volunteer fire department. And he is employed full-time as a fire dispatcher in the town of uh, Amherst in the fire alarm office. So uh, Tom is joining us. I want to say welcome brother. If I can get you in here. Be here. I'm trying to. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I just unmuted you. You wouldn't come on mute. My mouse is acting up. So it's a pleasure. <laughs> well, it's to an have honor you to be here. Thank you so very much. And let me just say uh, I echo everything you said about Bobby and what I'd give for one more phone call from him and just a few words of advice and wisdom that he was always there to provide for me and lift me up and guide me and just send me on my way so much Better mo. He may be a better person. There, there's just no doubt about it. I'm looking right now at the uh, at the at the sticker they gave out at his service and at the at the flyer they gave out in memory of him. It's sitting on my bookshelf here and will be forever, just because it inspires me to to see him. So it was nice to hear you guys uh, mention him, and I just want to let everyone know too that he definitely made an impact on me as well, and I'm gonna miss him like hell. Well, we appreciate that, brother, and um, we're going to do what he would want us to do, continue on with the teaching and the training. So we're going to hop right into this. 
Yes, and, the show must uh, go on. Exactly. And he would want us to go on. So the first question, um, how did the class topic come about, and what prompted you to do it? Well, it's funny. You know, it's funny talking about Chief Halton because he had a lot to do with it. It was kind of like the perfect storm of, of things coming together. Um, and there's two main players in it, and they're both <laughs> friends and people you know very well, obviously Chief Halton, but also Chief John Salka. And two things happened almost at the same time. Um, the first is I got out as chief. In my department, we, we have term limits, and you, do, you can serve five years as chief of department. A lot of reasons for that in the volunteer fire service, good and bad. I thought it was good. My family certainly thought it was good because it is a second full-time job. But I was always quoting Chief Salka, uh, having my officers read his articles, posting his articles throughout the firehouse, quoting him. And the guys used to tease me. The guys and gals were always teasing me. Oh, Chief Salka, Chief Salka, Chief Salka. Well, unbeknownst to me, for my outgoing installation banquet in the Volunteer Fire Service, many departments have an installation banquet where you install the chief officers. And at the end of my fifth year, they also at the banquet say goodbye to the previous chief. As a surprise to me, they flew in Chief Salka to be our keynote speaker. I had no idea, didn't know it till I walked into the banquet. And as you can imagine, I was just blown away that they did that for me. And at that dinner, making small talk with the chief, he heard me make a few comments when I was getting out, you know, my little speech. And he said, you know, I can tell you don't mind speaking in front of people. You should start writing and putting presentations together. Now, I had never done anything than other in my own volunteer firehouse as far as speaking and doing drills. And I kind of thought about it like, wow, do you think I could do something like that? And he goes, I think you should. And you know how Chief Salka talks. You absolutely should. You've got to put something together. So within a very short time frame of that, Chief Halton comes into Buffalo because – his wife is from Buffalo, and I was at work and read that the, uh, her father had passed away, and the wake was that night. And I came home from work and said to my wife, I think I'm going to go to Chief Halton's father-in-law's wake. Would that be a bad idea? And my wife said, Tom, who would ever be mad if you go to a wake? No, it's not a bad idea. It shows a lot of respect. So I got up the nerve to go to the wake, and I had met Chief Halton a few times at FDIC because, you know, Bobby, right, he always talked to everybody, and Bobby never forgot a face. I don't know how he did it. I wish I could learn that because, oh, my gosh, he was amazing at remembering faces, and he made the connection with me and my group from Snyder because we were from Buffalo, so every year he'd be like, oh, the Buffalo crowd, how you doing this year? So when I walked into the wake, he remembered me, and my nerve, my nervousness was immediately put to the side because he made me so feel so welcome and he pulled me aside in the funeral home there to a corner and we talked for about an hour just about everything and he said the same thing that chief salka said why don't you put some articles together why don't you write for me and i went home thinking about what am i going to write about i mean i was the chief of my volunteer fire department that's all i had done the volunteer fire service is all that i know what am I possibly going to contribute to this wonderful, iconic fire service of ours? So I put some thought into it, and one day this whole idea of professionalism came into my mind, and I developed my first article, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department, and sent it off to Chief Halton, who immediately put it on the website, 
and I followed that off with subsequent articles that he continued to put on the website. It's over 35 parts now to these articles, and then it also got into the magazine because I started writing for the magazine, and Chief Halton just kept encouraging me and encouraging me to write, and then one day the phone rings. It's Chief Halton, and he goes, I want you to put a presentation together based on your articles for FDIC. And I almost fell out of my chair because I know how revered FDIC is. I know what it takes to be an instructor there and to be asked to submit to be considered was such an honor and then to be accepted to teach there. Or I, I say I don't teach, I present. To present there was an incredible honor. And now to be going back for I believe it would be my 10th year if you took COVID out of the equation, I'm just completely honored and blown away. But that was the whole process of me putting together this professional volunteer fire department presentation and articles that I've written. And it's been quite a ride, and I'm still adding to it. And uh, the hour and 45-minute first class, certainly it went to a four-hour class then for several, several years. And now I have enough material that I've done even six-hour classes, and I have enough I could do eight if people wanted to do an all-day because there's never a shortage of things and topics to talk about. Man, it's fascinating to listen to you talk, brother. I, I can't tell you how many times I have heard through the years and have been a beneficiary of it that Bobby inspired you to do this or or gave you, you know, the insight to do that. And I know we are all very grateful that he has inspired you. Um, you're, you're touching on an element of the fire service that is so critical and so important. I mean, let's face it, the backbone of the American fire service has been our this idea that we would volunteer and that we would reach out into our community and that we would provide service. And it's just an inspirational thing. Um, I just had the chance. I got to be up in Elmsford, the village of Elmsford, with I'm sure you know Sid Henry and and his great team. And, and I was in uh, Emmett, Idaho, and Weezer, Idaho, and just these in, this incredible group of folks that, um, you know, farmers and factory workers and people working in car dealerships and school teachers and and all of them just just coming together to form this incredible community of fire protection. And um, I, Tom, I want you to know it, it, it's just inspirational. Nothing nothing hits me quite as deeply is when I'm standing in front of folks teaching a class and you know, and the guy will ask a question or he'll be answering a question. And I'll say, you know, hey, tell me your name and tell me about your department. And I'll say, ah, oh, my name, you know, is, is Joe Jones. And I've been a, a volunteer in this community for 35 years. And, and it's just breathtaking to consider that level of service and that level of commitment. And so I just want you to know that, that the topic you've taken on and what you've committed to your life to is so, just so inspiring and inspirational. Um, talk about you know, in, in building a professional foundation in a volunteer fire department. For our listeners, talk about some of the key building blocks that you've identified, a few places for them to start where they can have some of the success that you've had. Yeah, so I've identified for my class what I call 12 key building blocks to the professional foundation. And ironically, there's no... There's no play on words here. I know there's 12 letters in the word professional, but I didn't do an acronym for professional. I thought about it, but I didn't. It was just a coincidence. But um, 
and, and I start by just saying, number one, you need to have an awareness. You need to build an awareness in your firehouse of the image and reputation that has been bestowed upon the American firefighter, firefighters everywhere, the, the image of trustworthiness and honor and integrity. And from the moment somebody joins, you need to make them aware of that reputation and how important it is to uphold that image and reputation. And at the same time, you need to have an awareness that in 2023, we are living in a different, different world today. And in the past, the volunteer fire department was pretty much the center of a lot of communities. And people knew pretty much all the members there. They were probably a member themselves. And if they weren't, they certainly knew members who were in that volunteer fire department. And as I said, it was the center, the hub of the community. And they might have got a pass if things didn't go so well, if somebody misbehaved, if, gosh forbid, somebody did something even unethical, illegal. They might have got a pass might have been looked at a little differently. And you know that ain't the case today. We are judged just like any other organization, and we have to have our ship in order and provide the level of service that our communities expect to. So number one is awareness. And I think that's a very, very important building block in the professional foundation. And it's about bringing members in in an organized manner. I say think back to the, any job you had. When you, your first day on the job, how did they welcome you? You know, I know in the volunteer fire service when I first joined, and it's still common today in some areas that I've been traveling to, it's not uncommon to just have boots thrown at you and helmets and, and a pair of fire gloves, none of which will fit, right, your first few days, in, especially when you're my size. But And then it's just like, ah, just start going to calls, kid. You'll learn on the job. Well, I find you have much more success in building this professional image, this professional reputation, this culture, we'll call it by sitting people down and welcoming them in in a very organized, structured manner. Call it an orientation program if you want. And it can be as long or short as you want. There's just some key things you need to, to give to them. In addition to covering whatever your miscellaneous rules are, tidbits of information to make them more successful in the firehouse, and, oh, yeah, introduce them to this wonderful fire service that they are now part of, you also plant the seed for being a professional in all that they say and do. And you do it by exemplifying that yourself. And from there, the training has to be the focus of the volunteer fire department. You don't get an excuse to say we're just volunteers. You never use that as an excuse for you know taking a shortcut when it comes to training or not doing things the way they're supposed to be done. That's not going to cut it today. So everyone, from the newest member to the most senior member, has to embrace training. And we could spend all night talking about the volunteer fire service training drill, but the bottom line is it is so important, and you need to build that into the professional foundation. It has to be embraced by everybody. And it's a challenge, but there, it certainly can be done. You can design drills and training sessions that involve the newest member, to the most senior member, an interior firefighter and an outside firefighter, an EMS person and maybe someone that directs traffic control. You get them all down to the firehouse on a drill or training night, I guarantee you, you will help eliminate one of the biggest uh, complaints about the volunteer fire service, and that is clicks. You get people training together, and even if they're in separate groups, 
after the training drill, sit down and break bread together. There's nothing better than having a little meal after a training drill. You get senior members sitting with new members. The stories start flowing. The friendships form. The bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood form. And the clicks go away. Training is so vitally important in the volunteer fire service. And there's so many other aspects that go into the building blocks, but those to me are the top ones to get that culture felt from the minute somebody joins. And oh, by the way, Mike and Mike, I always say this is a culture that, yes, you want your members to feel it from that newest member joining to the veteran member. You want them to embrace and, and feel that professional culture. But it's also a culture you want felt in your community. So when they look at that volunteer firehouse, when they drive by it, when they walk by it, they think to themselves how well protected they are, how honorable those people are that serve in that volunteer firehouse. And sometimes we've got to remind our senior members of that every now and then, too. Like I said, this isn't just for the new people. And a great way to do that is maybe once a year you have to have some mandatory training, some safety training, things we have to requ uh, require to cover every single year. Throw in some reminders about what it means to be a professional firefighter. And National Volunteer Fire Council actually has a great printout called the uh, firefighter code of ethics that reviews a lot of these things that i think are so important about treating people respectfully being kind being open-minded training hard and, and there's even a spot or there used to be anyway where you could have members sign it and i thought it's a great idea to review it at a drill once a year in addition to the new members coming in all members review it once a year and you get everybody to sign it because they recommit to upholding that firefighter code of ethics and one more thing before I forget it. You hit the nail so right on the head earlier when you mentioned about just what an honorable thing it is when you, when you see these volunteers serving 20 years, 30 years, even five years, right? Here's the bottom line with the majority of volunteers. There's no hidden agendas. They're volunteering to step forward and serve their community. That is an honorable, honorable thing to do. And they come home from what? Their day job or being home with the kids all day, working around the house all day, whatever it is, they come home and maybe wolf down a quick meal, maybe help their kids with their homework, maybe help at the little league field, coaching or helping out, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden they look at their watch and what? Oh, gosh, i got to get to the volunteer firehouse because it's drill night. Or I've got to serve on a committee. We're getting a new truck. Or... There's a broken pipe that needs to fix, be fixed, whatever it is, right? How much on, more honorable can you be, right? Honorable people stepping forward and serving their community with no hidden agendas, no political motivations. They just want to build their firehouse to make it as best as it possibly can be and serve their fellow residents. I think that is fantastic, and we need to celebrate that, and we need to build professional foundations and that'll help get the message across to everyone coming through the door just how truly special what, is, what they are part of. That's great stuff. And it's so true in the volunteer fire service that, you know, there can be clicks and fighting clicks and fighting the things like that is so much needed, such a big part of it. And, um, the other thing is, I mean, we're firemen. We all love traditions. We love the traditions that the volunteer fire service started with, um, the trumpets. We still use them as awards and everything else. But we still have to change. I mean, New York City Fire Department, um, 
you know, we used to joke about the uh, the thing in the um, in backdraft, a hundred years of uh, tradition unimpeded by progress. But progress right. comes to every department. So, do me a favor. Tell our listeners about your concept of keeping an open mind and being open to new ideas in the in the volunteer fire service. But this is also any part of the fire service. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like to say that, you know, um, matter of fact, I was quoted once at a conference. We were out to dinner, and I said something in the conference. Uh, uh, Brad Pinsky used it uh, to advertise uh, the conference for the rest of the weekend. We were out to dinner once, and I said, you know, the fire service that I joined in the 80s was awesome. And the, the firefighters that were senior members back then that joined in the 50s, 60s, and 70s certainly painted the picture of an incredible, awesome fire service that they were part of. So I like to say, and I said at the dinner, the fire service of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s, and 90s, freaking awesome. Amazing people did amazing things, fought an incredible amount of fire, and dealt with so many crazy emergencies in some cases with little to no equipment, while they built what we take for granted today. Those were amazing times filled with amazing people. But that in no way means the Volunteer Fire Service of 2023 cannot be just as amazing because we have amazing people and they want to do amazing things. But we have to keep an open mind. We can't keep saying, as Chief Brunacini always used to say, firefighters hate two things, right? Change in the way things are. We have to keep an open mind. Let me give you an example. I'm one of the old guys. I'm 60 years old now, which, by the way, the average age in the volunteer firehouse is about 50. That's one of the challenges we face in the volunteer fire service. We need youth. But I'm a fire commissioner. There's five of us. And we have a recruitment and retention committee that we charge with, hey, we need to bring in members. We've always had a decent membership, 70 members strong in my volunteer department. Several years ago, it was dropping, which was common. We always would lose members, but we were always bringing members in. Our biggest problem in the Buffalo, New York area is exporting our people for jobs and opportunities outside of Buffalo. But we were always able to bring in new members. Well, all of a sudden, our bench was getting was getting light. We just didn't seem to be bringing in as many, and we were dropping into the 60s, and, and it was threatening that we were going to get lower than that. So uh, one of our assistant chiefs put together an R&R committee, and they spent a lot of time doing some research and, uh, and talking to people and seeing what was working and talking about ideas that maybe would work for us. And one day they came up to a board of fire commissioners meeting with a new idea, one of many ideas which we considered, one of several that we implemented. But this was a big one for us. For 100 years, my department operated on the premise that you needed to make a certain percentage of emergency calls every year to remain active. I mean, there's other stipulations. You've got to make so many training drills and other requirements, but you had to make 25% of our roughly 11 or 1,200 emergency calls a year to remain an active firefighter. It's not hard to do, especially if you're from what I call the more traditional family background where you're free at night to go to calls or you work second shift, but you're free during the day to go to calls. But it can be challenging for single parents, or if spouses are both in the fire service and they have young kids, and for other reasons as well. The committee said, we want to create a new membership category. They didn't invent it. 
we had heard about it being done elsewhere. They looked into it and tweaked it. And they came to us with a proposal to allow members to serve a number of hours per month. In other words, they pick a schedule that works for them based on their personal commitments. And okay. we we talked about it. Some of the senior members were, you know, it's change. It's not easy always to accept change. But at that meeting, the commissioners decided, and I'm proud of us for this. And, again, I'm the youngest at 60. Well, we just elected a new one in December that's a little younger than me, but I was the youngest at the time. I'm proud of us because we said, what do we have to lose? What do we have to lose by trying something new? So we introduced this hours program, and for us, it took off. Gentlemen, in the first year, it went live January 1st, 2022, 18 new members. As of last night at our fire commissioner meeting, we had four new members coming to our fire commissioner meeting last night to be approved. We are now well over 22 new members in just over a year with this new idea and new program. Not going to say it doesn't need some tweaks and modifications, and we've had meetings to do that, but what I'm saying is we have to keep an open mind. The volunteer fire service of yesterday was great, but those days are gone and they're never coming back. The volunteer fire service of today can be just as great. It just requires teamwork and the ability to work together for a common cause, which in this case, the goal was to increase our membership. So far, the results have shown it's working. we still got some work to do, but like I said, and we said at the board meeting a year ago, a year and a half ago, what do we have to lose by trying something new? Man, I wish that I wish that last sentence of yours would get tattooed on every fire chief's backside across the nation, man. What do we have to lose <laughs> by trying something <laughs> new? Um, excellent, man. No, I, I'll tell you what. I uh, just a couple places I've been recently, bro. Um, I'm going to send them the link to this and tell them in particular to listen to what you just said because I think it's going to be very inspirational for them. Um, and I, I think you're going to have a lot of people reaching out to you. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of concerns by a lot of folks within that are, that are trying to lead effectively in the volunteer you know, service if, if about I could bringing add, in youth. Mike, if I could add one quick thing. Someone told me once that'll never work in our department because we're too rural. We don't run enough calls, and I get that concern. But I talked to a chief who does the staffing program in a very rural area, and they they actually combine departments, and they staff one firehouse with members from other departments that are in the area so, and they respond to each other's jurisdictions, but they get out with a fully staffed rig. And I think that's an awesome idea. Yeah, well, and I feel like, you know, Tom, the point isn't that any one particular thing that you describe or any one idea may or may not work depending upon the particulars of where you, where you live or where you work, where your department is. The point is, Leaders like you are open to new ideas and identifying, okay, this may work, this may work, this may work, and this did work. And maybe based upon some of the things that you've described that worked for you, it may not work in the exact way you did it, but it might jog that creative bank to say, well, that won't quite work, but this variation of it where I work will be dynamite for us. That's what we're after. 
you know. Mm-hmm. Gosh, man, dig into the great wellspring of successes people are having and modify it to make it work in your, you know, in your place. I, I assume you would agree with that. Oh, 100%. 100%. Just it, we, we talk to other departments. I should say our committee talked to other departments, and I've been in areas that do staffing. You know, I, some do 12 hours a day with duty staffing. I've been in some that they assign the staffing. I've, we've talked to some departments that are 100% duty staffing. In other words, when you volunteer, you're going to serve shifts. You don't respond from home unless it's a big one. You know, you, you're going to serve shifts. So there's all sorts of takes on how to do it. This is what we did. You have to serve so many hours a month. So far, it's working, and we're going to keep monitoring it. And as, if we need to, we got to got to tweak it. And that's just one idea. I mean, there's so many ideas. Here's one for you. I was at a firehouse that provided childcare during drill season, during their training drill. So a single parent, wow. or or huh. a parent that maybe your spouse is working, but you want to get to the firehouse for the training drill. You bring the kids with you. It's usually children of firefighters that are of babysitting age or childcare age, but it doesn't have to be. They advertise it within the community, and they get people to come up to the firehouse and watch children, and they fill the room for the younger kids with play toys and things like that. And then I talked to a company that took it a step further and gave members of the community, sometimes it's their own children that aren't firefighters yet, pagers or phones, they get the text alert for significant incidents and report to the firehouse so people can come to the firehouse and drop their kids off and respond to the call. How cool is that? Wow. That is epic. Wow. And very honestly, with some of the other places I've seen, now you're training the kids. uh, My old volunteer fire department has a huge junior program. And now you're training the kids to be babysitters. Well, we're certified mm-hmm. as babysitters for firehouse. So now they can go out and put that on their resume, and they can do all of these things, and they can build up community service for their college applications and everything else. It's a win-win. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you're building that professional culture, they're being exposed to that right away. Yeah, oh. Yeah, it makes to- man it makes total sense. I, I, you're a prophet, brother. You're a prophet. So, uh, you want to hear another good one? What, I got one more for you. Uh, I'm in Pennsylvania. You bet, man. Rock on. I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania a year ago. They introduced me to what they have for their new member for their membership. It's called a first time home buyers program. They'll give a member ten thousand dollars to put down on their first house in the district. I said, how can you do that? What who, what department is that fund? They built a relationship with their town board, their town governing body, and one of the politicians actually said, we need to do this because we can't afford to pay a paid fire department. We need this to work. So they give members money to put down on the closing costs of their first house. Now, there's some caveats with it. I'm not going to say it's a blank check. They have to serve certain many a years, and there's, there is some payback at a, at a very low or zero interest rate, but at a certain level, the rest is forgiven. But what an incentive for younger people, well, anybody looking to buy a house, but in my experience, it's our, our younger 25 to 30-year-olds that have just gotten married and they're struggling and they need to buy a house, and the houses are pretty expensive. But, boy, can that really help get a, mem- a member get a house in your fire district? But, again, something they tried that was new and different. Yeah, and skin in the game. I love that. Skin in the game for yeah. the community. You know, you're asking for... You're asking for skin in the game from your volunteers who are going to give up a, you know, a chunk of time and, 
and dinners at holidays and sleep at night and Thursday and Friday nights on drill night. And it shows demonstrates skin in the game from the governing authority and from the city leaders. I just think that's phenomenal, man. That's excellent. Well, um, so we, we can talk a lot about and we'll talk a few more about things that folks can do before we get too far down the road. Um, when Mike and I talk about making a great firehouse, which we, we do a lot um, in, our, in our teaching and our travels, one of the first places we start, Tom, is we talk about the idea of casting a vision for what you would like to see, knowing what you want, or at least having an idea of what you want, not just expecting it to happen. But we always predicate that vision with vision isn't just looking forward to what's going to be true five years from now or, or all the great things that you want to do. But it needs to, part of your vision needs to include a respectful look back at the history of the department, where we came from, the men and women who made us great, the sacrifices that have been done to, you know, allow us to be in the, in the facilities we have with the rigs we have and the safety standards we have, et cetera, et cetera. But can you talk about that a little bit? It's one of these kind of, um, you know, you, you kind of described them as building blocks. Where do you see history and respecting history uh, as part of that? I love it. That is how I finish up my presentation. It's building block number 12, but it doesn't mean it's the 12th most important because I'm a big believer in preserving and talking about our history. I call it uh, building block 12, history, heritage, and pride. And it's all about appreciating where you've come from that rich heritage that is part of our DNA and being so proud to be a member of the American Fire Service, but also our hometown department. And as part of that, matter of fact, tomorrow night here in Amherst, I'm going to a local volunteer department to do a presentation that discusses their history because we find that it just gets lost and buried. And, and it's a sad thing because we want to talk about it. We need to preserve it. And um, I saw a quote once that by doing that, it's today's chance to preserve yesterday for tomorrow, <laughs> which I just thought was so, so cool. Um, but understanding where you come from, the people that built your department and made it what it is, is so important. You've got to realize that we stand on the shoulders of the giants that came before us. So many volunteer fire departments started from scratch with little to nothing. In many cases, they threw their own money into a hat to just get what they needed to get started and did the repairs on the apparatus themselves, and it's still the way it is in so many of them. But they built this wonderful fire service in their hometown fire department, and you need to remember those that came before. And when I I say to people, when you walk down the hallways in a lot of firehouses, they have the old black and white photos and just photos of not just fires, but people. And that's a good sign to realize that you are in the midst of greatness. Look at what they built. Talk about those people. There's another great quote, as long as you speak their names, they're never truly forgotten. Don't let those names fade to the dust of time. Talk about who these people were. Matter of fact, Part of my probationary training is a, tra is a history section where we talk about the history of the department and who made it what it is. We walk down the hallway and look at the old photos and discuss what's going on in them, some of the big fires, some of the movers and shakers, some of them gone 50 years now, but their name lives on. 
we go by the memorial wall to all the people that have served as our, our chiefs over the years. All our president's names are on the wall. Talk about them. Remember them. Speak their name because as long as we speak their name, they're never truly forgotten. Also, in addition to your firehouse, realize that this iconic fire service is an amazing thing, too. And I like to sprinkle in tidbits of American fire service history as well. You know, you mentioned earlier the, the speaking trumpets that we wear on our collar, right? The history associated with those. And by the way, so many people would be so grateful to hear we didn't call them bugles, right? They're trumpets. They don't play music, right? Where the term runs comes from, where the term plug comes from, because they used to have wooden what, what water mains that they would plug after the fire, after they drilled into it. I just found something really interesting out doing research for my presentation tomorrow. Why do we have crash bars on doors, things we take for granted today, right? We have crash bars on doors because of the Iroquois Theater fire in 1903. Oh, by the way, killed 602 people, the deadliest theater fire in U.S. history. Well, there was a hardware salesman named Carl Prinzler who was supposed to be at the fire at the at the performance that night, but because of work got delayed, didn't make it, and he was determined to after that fire do something about it and came up with the crash bar idea because so many people couldn't escape. And you can't take that for granted. Things we do take for granted. Why can you smell natural gas? Because they add more captain to it, right? Well, why is that? It's because in New London, Texas, back in the 1930s, a school blew up killing hundreds of children. And we go on a gas leak today and we criticize, uh, what a waste of time. Well, you tell the parents of those children what a waste of time it is to go to that call. Something we take for granted today. Jerry Wells is a chief and uh, retired chief out of Louisville, Texas. Our friend Rick Lasky's uh, department, right? He says, "Know your why. Know why you do things." And that's true in the fire service. Again, why do we have a Maltese cross? Why do we call it runs? Why is it plugs? We have a term in New York State called exempt firefighter. Where does that come from? Well, in the 1800s, there was a crisis in in people power. They were having trouble recruiting members. Believe it or not, first crisis in, uh, first recruitment crisis in the volunteer fire service was around 1812, 1815. New York State said, oh, if you join your volunteer fire service, fire department, your local volunteer department, you can be exempt from military service and you can be exempt from jury duty. And volunteer firefighters in New York are exempt for jury, for jury duty up until about 20 years ago, which is pretty funny. But know your why. Why do some companies do push-ins of apparatus? Well, because in the days of horses... The horse couldn't back into the firehouse. So they disconnected the horse, and the firefighters pushed the apparatus back into the firehouse. Why did they rinse it off? Well, because it was covered in not just mud, but other things as well that were so common in the streets. But you see what I'm saying? It's just so important to know where we come from and preserve it for the generations that are joining today. Because if you don't know where you've been, you're never going to know where you're going. And oh, by the way, there's one more very important reason to understand the past. And it was Chief Vinnie Dunn who said it so well. There's no new lessons to be learned from a firefighter's death or injury. The cause of a tragedy is usually an old lesson we have not learned or have forgotten along the way. And for me, that hit home when I read that. And I'll tell you why. When I was a young fire officer in 1988, the Hackensack, New Jersey, fire occurred that killed five firefighters. You remember that one in July of 88? 
five firefighters oh, yeah. were killed. Oh, and it was a, yep, and that was a trust roof failure. And when I, as a young officer, the chiefs at the time drilled the lessons learned from that fire into us young officers in Snyder and in my whole town. And for a generation after that, most of my firefighters and officers understood the dangers of the trust failure and the lessons learned from that fire. A few years ago, I was talking about Hackensack in our fire department club room, and I was looked at with some open eyes and some young firefighters not knowing what I was talking about, including some of our newer officers. And I'm like, uh-oh, we got a problem here. We haven't passed these lessons on. And I started doing some research, putting together a presentation so I could make sure that they understood these lessons. And you know what I discovered? What happened 10 years before Hackensack in August of 1978? Wall bombs. Wall bombs. Crush roof failure. What happened 10 years before wall bombs in November of 1968 in Wichita, Kansas? There was a Chevrolet dealership dealership that suffered a catastrophic fire, Yingling Chevrolet, that killed several firefighters, four, I believe, including the chief of department, Thomas, I could say it wrong, I think it's McGahee, who was out celebrating his 36th wedding anniversary with his wife when it went to a greater alarm, and he told her he had to go to the fire, and he never returned. What happened one year before that? Another trust roof failure that killed a bunch of firefighters in Cliffside Park, New Jersey. And I could go on and on and on. So the point here is, maybe if we just passed these lessons on and made sure they were being passed on from generation to generation, we can prevent history, tragic history, from repeating itself. So there's so many reasons to preserve history, to talk about history, to celebrate history, and make sure that we speak the names of those who served before and they don't fade to the dust of time. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, unbelievable. And, you know, the stories you know, the stories you hear about, um, you know, wall bombs, Hackensack Ford, I mean, Hackensack Ford, ended up being the, uh, really, I hate the sound, um, it ended up being my entrance into the uh, teaching through Hackensack Ford because I wrote something for the FDNY about rapid intervention teams and um, what we have to do because we listen to that tape all the time about the guys trapped in the pool room. And, you know, the police officer listening to it and hearing it, and they couldn't hear it on the fire ground frequency on the scene. And I wrote something, and it went nowhere in the New York City Fire Department. But at the time, Vinny Dunn was my division commander, and he said, can I take this and give it to a friend of mine? And I said, Chief, you can have it. I mean, I just wrote it for the betterment of the department. And he says, no, no, it's good stuff, Mike, and I want to get it uh, printed. And he delivered it to, at the time, to Harvey Eisner, who was the editor of Fire and, uh, Firehouse Magazine. And that's how I got my start in the fire service, was because of that. So those things, I mean, are so epic. And if you're right. If our younger members don't know these things, there's a huge problem with them. And it kind of 
that kind of leads us into the next question because I think it's so important that we talk about this. Talk about some of the challenges you see in developing officers in the volunteer fire service. Yeah, that is tough because, you know, if it's your paid job, right, you have to show up and you you have to be there. And in the volunteer fire service, you want people to show up, but there's really little you can do if they don't. Yeah, you can have your minimum requirements in that, but you need them to do more than their minimum requirements. So it, it, it's tough. It, it's uh, it's not easy. So I always say and it's, it's actually one of the building blocks that I talk about in my in my presentation. It is uh, officer development. And, and, oh, by the way, with my building blocks, here's the really cool thing. Everything I talk about, all 12 of the building blocks are under your personal control. Every single one of them. And I I tell the group that at the beginning of the class and then ask them at the end, do you have personal control over every one of these? And they agree they do because I don't talk about anything that's, you know, that's out of your control. And developing into a competent officer is certainly in your control if you make the time and put in the effort to do it. And it's, you know, we often in the volunteer firehouse have that fantastic firefighter, the best hose person, best nozzle person, the uh, most incredible paramedic in your department. They can do amazing things, but they can't win. And let's face it, in a lot of volunteer firehouses, it's an election. They can't win an election or get the appointment to save their life. And if they do win the election or get the appointment, they have trouble getting reelected or reappointed because they struggle. Because once you get into office, you realize it's a lot more than knowing nozzles and EMS and things like that, right? It's, there's so much more to it. And it doesn't come with the election. It doesn't come with the appointment, that knowledge. You have to go out and seek it. And you have to embrace professional development, pardon the pun, to develop into a good, competent officer and leaders. Because being successful as an officer means so much more than just being competent. So you've got to go out and seek that knowledge. You've got to learn to appreciate going to conferences. You've got to read, right? The old saying, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to be a reader. And you've got to look at the successful officers you've worked under and even the unsuccessful officers are the ones that didn't motivate you to learn what not to do. You can as learn, learn as much from uh, a poor officer and poor leader as you can from a good one. So I say that it's personal and you need to go seek professional, personal, professional development. And departments then also are involved and they need to support it. They need to make sure that they're finding out about training opportunities, and if they can do it, they are supporting efforts to send officers out to get those training opportunities because it's just so important. And then when you become an officer, you can't just flick a switch on and expect the credibility to be there. You've got to be building that ahead of time. Matter of fact, I, I like to say the confidence that your firefighters have in you is someone that they're going to follow doesn't start when the tones drop or on the administrative side when your gavel hits the table as the president. It certainly starts well before that. And I used to say, build your resume 
build your resume, be aware of your reputation, understand your actions, clearly show who you are, continue to sell your brand as a person that is working hard to develop into a good firefighter, a good member of your volunteer department, and train, train, and train, and that includes leadership training as well. And it's, it just does. And I used to hand out a little nugget to the people that first became officers. I had Merrill nuggets that I would hand out, and I would hand this nugget out to them. And I have it right in front of me here, because I, I, it's kind of long. But I would tell the officer, "Hey, just remember now that you're a, a fire officer, and the success you for you to be successful, you've got to accept responsibility in everything that you do." And by volunteering to be an officer, and remember, we're talking volunteers here, so you volunteered to join the department, but now you're volunteering to be an officer. And that's saying you want to do more. You want to be responsible. You're going to be leading people. You're going to need to train. And you're going to want to get things done and take care of projects. You need to make a commitment to being visible in the firehouse, understanding that jobs and family come first. There's no mistaking that. But by volunteering to be an officer, you're saying you can make that commitment. You can find the time. You have the time management skills or will help you find those time management skills to be successful. doesn't mean maybe that everything's got to get done that night or even the next day, but it doesn't mean six months from now something you're expected to do hasn't been taken care of. Things need to get done in a consistent, timely, and efficient manner. And I would hand that out to the officers and talk to them. It wasn't a dictatorship. It was just, here's the expectations, and I'm going to help you do this if you need some help with that. And then the other big thing was just learning to understand people. We can't control who's coming through the door in the volunteer firehouse as far as their personality. And there's a line I like to use, you can't control the cards you're dealt. It's how you play your hand that really counts. You've got to learn what motivates people, what makes them tick, what strengths they bring to the table. And you can only do that by getting to know them. And I'll say to some people in my officer class, think about your newest member. Are they married? What's their spouse's name? Where do they work? Do they have children? Are their kids involved in sports? They've been on any vacations lately. Show you care. Show that you know them. Doesn't cost a dime, but boy, will it pay off dividends exponentially. And I just think that is so, so important. The other thing with officers, you got to do the work. It's not all leading, taking members down a dark, smoky hallway or spiking an IV bag. And I always like to say, if you're going to, you know, I think it was Colin Powell who said it, right? If you're going to achieve excellence in big things, you develop the habits in little matters. And boy, are there a lot of little matters in the volunteer firehouse that you can take care of every single day. Whether it's truck checks on the firematic side, paying the bills on the treasurer's side, compiling the department minutes monthly. You know, I became an officer, I'm sorry, a commissioner. You know what they gave me as one of my delegated jobs? Fixed assets. You know how fun that is? But you know what? Someone's <laughs> got to do it. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. And they used to give it to the newest commissioner, but I've had it now, even though we've had three commissioners come in after me, just because I rolled my sleeves up, I got to know what fixed assets were, and I do the job. Would I rather lead a crew down a dark, smoky hallway? Yes. But you know what? There's a lot of jobs that go in successfully running a volunteer fire department, including somebody's got to do fixed assets. So that's another thing I would always talk to my officers about. 
you got to do the routine jobs. Someone's got to order paper plates, right? Somebody's got to order. Oh, God, don't ever run out of coffee in the volunteer firehouse. Oh, my gosh, there'll be enough people. So, <laughs> all of those things require, what did I say at the beginning, responsibility. But people might not know that when they raise their hand and say, yeah, I want to be a lieutenant or I want to be a treasurer, not treasurer, that's a tough one, but I want to be on the board of directors say, well, there's a lot that goes with that, including those couple of things that I covered. So, And it's not always easy because, like I said, on the volunteer fire side, you know, you're going to get a lot of personalities, and if you don't learn how to manage people correctly, you're going to turn around one day and find nobody's with you. And if that's the case, you got to look in the mirror. And, Mike Dugan, I know you'll appreciate this. I love to tell the story about Eisenhower. Eisenhower, the man who led us across Germany in the great successful D-Day invasion, led us to victory in Europe, right? Did he have some personalities he had to work with? Did he have to mold <laughs> oh, into a team? You know, between, what, General Patton, old blood and guts, right, and Bernard Montgomery on the British side, a little egotistical, and 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 uh, also who was the um, who was the gentleman's general, um, Omar Bradley, who preferred to remain in the background. And now Eisenhower could have simply said, "I can't work with these people," like I hear sometimes in the volunteer firehouse. I can't work with these people. What did Eisenhower do? He learned what made them ticked. He knew how to. He knew their strengths. He knew their weaknesses. He knew how to mold them into a winning team. And look what they accomplished. Look what they did. I think it's a little more than getting that bylaw through that you're struggling to get through, or accepting defeat because the bylaw you wanted to pass didn't pass. Right. So sometimes. You just got to work with the people you have and understand they don't think like you do. They don't have the same likes that you do, but it doesn't mean you still can't learn how to work with them. Is it easy? No. It's not like Some people are natural at it. Some people got to go to classes and read and understand how to maybe make themselves develop. But the bottom line is the information you need to be successful, the leadership traits and things like that, you need to be successful, they're not going to come when you win the election. They're not going to come by virtue of the appointment you get to that higher office. It comes with a lot of hard work. It doesn't come naturally. And you can be the greatest firefighter in your department, the most skilled firefighter in your department, but you can still turn around someday and find there's nobody behind you. And if you're not, if people aren't following you, you're not leading Well, man, there's a, a, so much good stuff in there. Um, I wanted to just because you know we, we have time considerations here, but let me let me just build off of one key thing you said, and it was you're going to have a broad range of personalities, and some of those personalities are going to be interesting, or challenging, or um, odd, <laughs> if you will. Um, Talk to the folks that are listening now, because I think you've got people's attention. Um, you really do. Um, they're trying to do a good job. They're trying to lead their department. And we've talked a lot about bringing people into the department. Can you give them some thoughts on retaining the existing members they have and way to motivate the folks, particularly those that have put a lot of time in, you know, and, and uh, maybe it's getting old hat to them or whatever. Um, talk yeah. about retention yeah. a little bit, retaining some of these complex personalities you so aptly described. Yeah. You know, it's funny because 
you know, we talk so much about recruitment, and it very it's very important to talk about recruitment. It, it, it is just, you know, a hot topic today. We need to be bringing members in. But I think a lot of volunteers will admit and agree to the fact that retention is just as important, if not even more important, especially if you're bleeding members that you put a lot of time in to train and bring up to speed. Um, so, yeah, retention is huge. matter of fact, I'm doing, I, I do a presentation how to improve morale in the volunteer firehouse because, you know, the old saying is where do we fight more fires, in the firehouse or on the fire ground? And it's typically in the firehouse, right? And sometimes it's the, I call it just such wasted energy. It's the stupidest, most mundane things that just blow up and take everyone, sap everybody's energy and demotivate them. And when you dig down in the root cause of it, sometimes it's the silliest, silliest things. So first and foremost, realize, I, I use the line, everyone has a cousin, Eddie. Y'all know Cousin Eddie, right, from the Christmas vacation movie and the, or the vacation movies in general, right, with Chevy Chase and all. Everyone's got that member that's just slightly awkward and maybe off kilter a little bit. But pretty much everybody still brings value to the table. And I, as I said earlier, get to know your people. You know, there should never be a reason to drive by the firehouse and keep driving by because somebody's car is there that you don't want to see. It's a brotherhood and a sisterhood like none, like no other. So really get to know your people and respect your people. And your senior members certainly are deserving of respect. And sometimes I call these dysfunctional moments in the volunteer firehouse, and it's easy to see how they happen. You get a good group in there. They've been in for five or six years. They're getting elected to the fire officer line now, and they're really gung-ho. They're dedicated. They're going to a lot of calls. And in walks a member with 45 years or 30 years, and he hasn't been around in a little bit. And right away, the younger gung-ho people think nothing of that person because he doesn't participate like he used to. Then they then you find out that this 30-year member, this 35-year member, they had served time as a chief. They put in a lot of time. They're not going to as many calls, and in some cases it's because they don't have to anymore because the more time in, maybe some of the requirements have dropped. Training should never drop. I'm big on that. But maybe their call requirements have dropped because they have so many years in. And to me, a chief and the senior officers can really teach the younger officers how important it is to respect those senior members. I think it's so important to still call previous chiefs chiefs. That's a big thing in my area. When I got out as chief, to have members still calling me chief, just out of respect, not on the fire ground as if I could give any orders or anything like that, but the respect that showed, and it still continues to this day with new members joining. Our new members joining are told who the former chiefs are and are taught to teach them to call them chief, which is so important. Now, not everyone was a chief, and I get that. But at the same time, the senior officers and chief officers should be talking to these new officers, these gung-ho people, these newer members, about the 30-year members, the 20-year members. Talk about what they did. We have one of our members that never made it to chief, but he was a captain for 26 years. He's 66 years old right now. He's still on our active roles. He drives a lot. He's one of our fire commissioners, actually. But some people might look at him like, what did he ever do? Well, son, back when he was 30... He was getting out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning just like you are. He was losing a lot of sleep going to those calls in the middle of the night. He was serving on a lot of committees, and he was doing a lot of work. But if they're not told that, they can easily dismiss him as being not important. And at the same time, I tell the senior members, myself included, 
Accept this new generation. Yeah, they don't know a Phillips head from a flathead. Chief Salka said, I believe, I think it was Chief Salka told me, what do they call them, pluses and minuses now for the screwdrivers? Something like that. That's what one of my kids said. Is it a plus or a minus? Yeah. Right. So, but they're a lot smarter than we are in, in, in some ways. And I find it fascinating to sit down and get to know these new uh, men and women joining the volunteer firehouse. And they're, they're, they're doing amazing things. Yeah, they don't know how to maybe change oil. They don't understand gas-oil mixtures. Our job is to teach them how to be firefighters. That begins, by the way, with building block number two, the orientation program. Start the process, right? But it's just – and then I say it's mutual respect. We've got to respect each other. Give the respect that you, in turn, expect to be given back because – they're different, and they look at me. What? I'm a boomer, right? My kids call me a boomer, and that's what the young firefighters call me. I'm proud of that. And I'll tease them and call them a young name or something. But it's all about respect, them being taught how it, what it means to be a professional firefighter, and me understanding that they're not the same as me and my generation, but we're all still there for the same reason, to provide dedicated, competent compassionate, professional service to our residents. We need to keep selling that message to everyone in the organization. I think that's great. And um, you kind of touched on the next question a little bit, but the retention, uh, what are some of your thoughts on how to retain members? What are some of the things you are thinking about you talked earlier about the, the mortgage system with the closing costs, which is brilliant. Right, right. What are some of the other things you're seeing that are working? Um, it, it's Yeah, retention is a huge deal, too. Um, so the uh, couple other ones I saw that um, one department was doing another. It was an offtake of the hours program. It's called the hours program from home. Here's how that one works. You can't staff the firehouse but you come home, say, from a trip or your long day job, whatever it is, you get home, You can. there's apps you can use, Active 911, I Am Responding are some of the big apps. You sign in on duty from home. And what you're saying is, I am on duty, I am going to any calls between now and whatever time you select, 7 a.m., 8 a.m., and you get credit for that. So you're serving your volunteer. See, in a lot of volunteer firehouses, you only get credit if you go to a call. With the hours program or in this offshoot of a duty program from home, you get credit by saying, I'm on duty and I'm home, but I'm going to leave if we get a call. There's a lot of advantages to that. Number one, it keeps a member who maybe travels for work or travels with sports teams or whatever, they can come home and clock in and get credit for serving overnight. They're going to cost themselves some sleep if they get a call, but that's, that's what they're agreeing to do, and it keeps them as an active member. Number two... The chief officers or anyone actually can sign in and see how many people they got getting up at, at night for the routine call. This is obviously for routine calls where you only need a few people, but it, it, it's another way to keep someone that otherwise you might lose. They're able to sign in from home, and they commit to responding. Now, someone said to me once, well, what if they don't go when there's a call? Well, obviously, you're going to deal with that, right? You're going <laughs> to you're gonna have to deal with it because one guy said he works for the DTPW, and sometimes he gets called in at 3 in the morning to go plow. Well, I understand that, and you just got I think you just have to tell the chief that. Chief, I'm gonna. I got called in at three. That's why I missed the 4 a.m. call. I, I, you know, there's, there's, 
you know, nothing wrong with that. But again, it's instead of saying no right away because of that, you you think about it and you come to a reasonable solution for that problem that was brought up. So duty staffing from home, just another tension uh, idea. One of them that a lot of companies are doing are alternative membership categories. Not everyone maybe is going to be a frontline interior firefighter. Maybe as people get older, their their interests change or their health changes, but they can still provide value to the department. There's that old saying, many hands make light work. Why not open up different categories of membership? For example, obviously, interior firefighter, very important. Exterior firefighters can be extremely important, doing all outside work. Driver only. Some people are very interested in that. Some people are interested in just doing EMS only. Um, one new idea that we implemented, I, I told you at the beginning of the program that we considered a lot of new ideas along with the duty staffing idea. Another one we put in our bylaws is we have a membership category called administrative only, which opens our ranks up to people from the community that want to serve and help out, but they don't have any interest in driving or going to emergency calls However, they will be our treasurer, or they will be the secretary and record minutes. Or, one case I saw, how cool is this, they'll do your fundraising. Take that responsibility off of some of your members that are also going to calls and training. Lightening the load, right? Many hands make light work. Controversial, I'm not going to say everyone in my department wanted to do that, but it's in our bylaws that we can accept administrative members. Now, with that, they don't vote on things. They don't have certain rights and privileges that maybe the actives have, but it's another category to bring in members or retain members that maybe were just their interests were changing. Like I said, they were getting older, whatever, that maybe would go out the door. So those are just a couple of them, and there's, there's a lot of other interesting retention ideas. And, again, the bottom line is, the professional volunteer fire department isn't afraid to try new ideas and say what's working, what isn't. And if you if you really want to find out some things, you know, if you're a leader in your volunteer fire department, do some anonymous surveys. Send out some surveys about what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong. And obviously, you throw out there's going to be some people that go crazy with them and just criticize everything. We did that. Our membership committee did that when they started this process. They sent out a series of anonymous surveys asking very good questions. What's working? What's not? What changes would you like to see? What, what's good about our leadership? What's poor about our leadership? And if you don't want to do that, at the very least, do exit surveys when members are leaving. Most departments, people resign, right? They hand in a resignation letter. They should anyway. It's the professional thing to do. Well, take a minute. And just do an exit survey. What's causing you to leave? What could, could we have done anything better to keep you? Could the organization have been structured differently to maybe keep you? And it would be interesting what you find out. Now, some cases, they just have no choice. They're moving because of their job. Their family responsibilities just became excessive for whatever reason. But in a lot of cases, I think you'd find some things that maybe you could change or do differently to retain some of the members that you are losing. Yeah, man. Well, let me let me talk to you about a couple of those members. 
Um, and this, Tom, this is uh, last question or second to the last question for the evening. So you're on the home stretch, brother. That's all right, um, brother. I'm doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing great, man. I gosh, we. I'm enjoying listening to you, and I know there's a whole bunch of folks out there that are going to—they're going to really benefit from this. So, let me talk about a couple of those folks that you potentially could lose, or if you do it right, you end up getting one of the best contributors you're ever going to get to the job. Talk to our folks about ways that you have either brainstormed or actually done to motivate or re-energize your vets, your veteran members who maybe over time have kind of gotten a bit lax or maybe um, maybe even a little bit disillusioned with newer folks coming in or things changing or whatever. Um, how, do, how do we get those folks out of the recliner or into the firehouse and back to being the, the quality, senior, tenured firefighters that we really need to make this thing work? Well, it gets back to that respect. Um, first of all, extend the respect to them. Make sure that you, that they know you are letting the newer members understand what you did back in your prime and what a valuable contributing member you were back then. But then involve them. I used to go up to some of my senior members. I remember when I was chief, I went up to a former chief who was quite older than me at the time and said, I may be chief of department, but that doesn't mean I know everything. I'm going to rely on you at certain times. Maybe at a call, might want to pick your brain. And it might be if something's going on in the firehouse. And then one time, I did. I called him in the office and just said, I want your honest feedback. How do you think things are going? He had the, he had the, the um, respect of the younger crowd, so I knew he would bring me feedback. How's things going? What are they saying? What can we do better? So I extended him the respect of, I know you've been there. I know you've done it. And I know now I'm wearing the white helmet, but I want to still lean on you. I want to use you. So extend respect to those veteran members. Show that you understand what they used to did. You appreciate that. And then you really want to work good with them, let them get involved in training drills. Let them help plan a drill. Now, you don't do that at the last minute. You don't help a sudden on training night look over at Joe Smith or Jane Smith and say, hey, I know you did this when you were chief. You're going to now do this drill tonight because that catches them off guard, and they could find themselves slightly embarrassed if they haven't brushed up on their skills. But there's nothing wrong with using some of these veteran members in a planning process for a drill or conducting a drill. One thing we did in Snyder is we have a mentor program. We assign new members coming in a mentor, and we lean on our senior members to serve as mentors for the newer members. Now, it's not a, a big-time commitment. It involves some of the things I've already talked about, ensuring they know our little unique ways of doing things, ensuring they know what, how special it is to be part of the volunteer fire service and the Snyder Fire Department. But at the same time, they're getting to connect with these newer, younger members, in most cases younger members, coming through the door. So the mentor program has been very successful for us. It's been successful in onboarding new members. It's also been successful in reinvigorating some of our more senior members that maybe were slowing down a bit. One in particular I can think of was another long-serving captain, served about 12, maybe 15 years as a captain in his early 60s, retired as a school teacher. He, he, he was always very physically fit, but by mid-60s he wasn't going to be a structural interior firefighter anymore. He's a driver and uh, does a lot of outside things. 
and he's one of our top mentors. He loves meeting the newer people and getting them started off in the right direction, and it really reinvigorated him. But I find with senior members, so often in my talks with them, they get demotivated simply because of a lack of respect. And the newer people coming in don't know what they used to do, and sometimes things are changed, and you can't be afraid of change, but if a long, here's a good one for you, if a long-standing way of doing things is changed, if the, the person that inter, in, introduced that originally is still an active member, if I'm the chief, I'm talking to them ahead of time about why we're changing it. I'm giving them the courtesy of understanding why, of letting them know why we're doing it and letting him have a chance to rebut that and say, well, here's why I think you shouldn't change it. Or maybe you'll get them to say, or her, I understand why you're doing it. But at least it's showing them the respect that they deserve. And I think so often, Mike, it just comes back to that respect and showing those senior members that you do respect their previous service. And then let them know you're counting on them. You know, I, I used to tell my senior members, I do remember telling a couple of my senior members this, I give you a pass. You're not getting out of bed at 3 in the morning like you used to for the routine call. But when those tones drop for that serious incident, that structure fire, or something that just sounds much more serious than our routine calls that are usually covered very well by the officers and squad people, that we have squads overnight. But for that serious call, I count on you to be there. I really appreciate you getting out of bed and driving for me or just being there in case I need an extra opinion on something. I, I value your experience and what you've done in the past. And that went a long way. And I did that once even with a member. I'll tell you one thing. I had a member once. He had about seven, eight years in. Still a young man, very physically fit. But he wasn't going – he was on we, – we assigned squads to cover EMS calls overnight. We don't need all 70 members at an EMS call overnight. So we break it into squads, and we expect small groups of our squad to show up at a medical call. And this young man – about seven, eight years in, wasn't showing up. And I asked him why. And he said he didn't feel valuable. And I said, I'll tell you what, you live close to the firehouse. I value you getting to the firehouse and being the driver of that squad at night. And he did it for my whole term as chief. I gave him the President Chiefs Award one year because of the fact that he was getting out of bed and covering 100% of his squad calls overnight and driving. And I just extended him a little respect and said, I need you. You're still valuable to me, and I appreciate what you can do. And it worked. So does that make sense? There's just some little things like that. It's just, respect is so important. It's, just, it's so underutilized, and we're so quick to dismiss others and not listen to others and not try to understand others and always think our way is the only way, and if you don't think like me, then you're, you're not valuable to me. And nothing could be farther from the truth, especially – in the volunteer fire service when our greatest asset is our people. We need people. That's unbelievable. I think that's so great because it's true. It's so true. And the respect and the acknowledgement of your service. And, um, you know, Mike and I, uh, in our class, when we teach this house rocks, if we're teaching the longer one and we have the time, uh, time to talk about it, we talk about a chief in uh, Dry Ridge, Kentucky, who went in and a senior man in the department was getting um, burnt out, pissed off, turned off, and the chief came in and recognized him 
for his service and everything else, brought his family in, had him recognized at a meeting, presented him a plaque. The plaque is on the wall. This guy met us at the front door of the firehouse and came, brought us in. The first thing he wanted to show us is his plaque. And it was just so cool. And that goes so far in all your people. And I think that's just a great thing. And I think that's perfect. So in finalizing this, um, there are a couple of things. Is there anything else you would like to say before I ask you the final question? Yeah, just real quick back to what you were saying about respect, and, and I meant to touch on this. Of course, one thing we can do that would help with retention is recognizing service milestones. Um, again, many volunteer departments have annual installation dinners and banquets and where they install officers and things like that, and that's when they usually do that. And it's so important, um, recognizing years of service, however you want to do it, five years and then 10 years and then 15 years. If they achieve life membership status, that's a big deal. That should be recognized. Um, service milestone recognition is huge. And the, the caution I throw out there, and, and we do a ton of it. I, I'm all in favor of it, and it's so important and, and improves morale tremendously. Be fair and equitable. What you do for one, you do for all. And chief or president or commissioner or whoever, if you personally don't like somebody, but they deserve to be honored for 10 years of service, 20 years of service, or they met minimum requirements for whatever award they get, they get it. You can't play that game. You have to be fair and equitable in your recognition programs. And those recognition programs are huge and go such a long way in retaining members and motivating members. But it's got to be fair and it's got to be equitable. Amen, brother. Amen. That's so true. So... um, do us a favor, tell our listeners where they can get a hold of you and if you're working on anything new right now. Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I have a Facebook page, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. I'm always on there posting informational articles and links to articles and videos and, and a lot of motivational sayings and things like that. It's the Professional Volunteer Fire Department Facebook page. My website is theprofessionalvfd.com, and I have all sorts of information on there regarding delivering this professional service and programs that I offer, and I just love getting out and meeting firefighters all over this country, and I could talk forever, as you know. (laughs) One thing my wife always asks me when I come home when I've traveled, how was it? And I'll say the same thing every single time. I think I met 100 or 200 new friends because that's how great our volunteer fire service is, isn't it? I say it every single time that I travel. So the Facebook page, uh, website, uh, professionalvfd.com. My email is T as in Thomas, A as in Albert, Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L-L, the number 63 at AOL.com. Yes, AOL. My kids make fun of me all the time, but, hey, it works for me. So it's (laughs) T-A Merrill, 63 at AOL.com. And yes, I I am working on something huge. Um, It should be coming out hopefully this year, but definitely by next year. And that is uh, um, a book. Again, another Bobby story. I remember it like yesterday when he called me and offered me the opportunity to write a book um, by Fire Engineering Books and Videos, the Professional Volunteer Fire Department. 
and I'm I'm so bummed that he will isn't here to won't be here to enjoy <clears> it and read it. Um, but um, that should be coming out. I was hoping uh, for FDIC this year. They were hoping for FDIC this year, but these things take time. And um, it's probably going to be later in the year or maybe next year's FDIC. But I'm very, very excited to have authored that book, The Professional Volunteer Fire Department, which is going to be just a, um, the, the, the building blocks that I talked about tonight or a few of them I talked about tonight. But all the building blocks will be in there. And um, um, it's, I'm really excited about that. That's a new endeavor for me to write a book. <laughs> Good feel. Yeah, Tom, oh, uh, man, I, he, boy, Mike, did, did that guy do a good job tonight or what? I'm, I'll, I'll tell you what, oh. so I am, I've, I have like a page and a half of notes that I've written down because I've been in, in the last like three or four months, I've been in four or five predominantly volunteer fire department seminars. It was a mix, but a majority were either, you know, paid on call or straight volunteer, all the different configurations. And um, I'm going to pass, I'm going to pass the link on to this to them and I'm going to connect them with you because I think they are going to be blessed with the treasure trove of knowledge that you've got. And you also, brother, you're, you're an honest guy and you're a guy of great integrity, but you also can, uh, you can articulate it really well. So um, prepare for your phone to start ringing some more, brother. (laughs) <laughs> I, I get I get passionate about it, and you know I'm never going to pretend to be somebody I'm not. Matter of fact, I, in, I talk about I say you know people have recommended that I change the name of my program and my writings to the professional fire department because so much of what I talk about can probably apply on the paid career side as well. But I don't want to pretend to be somebody I'm not. I've been a volunteer firefighter for 40 years now. I am predominantly presenting to volunteer fire departments. The volunteer fire service, I feel, is what I know, and that's what I get passionate about. That's what I want to talk about, and um, so that and and that's I get fired up, as you can tell, because we have to preserve it, and we we have to deliver this professional level of service. It's what our residents expect today and deserve. Amen, brother. Amen. Um. I think it's it's great, and uh, I think you're doing the great stuff. And I look forward to seeing you in it's not that long, in a couple of uh, weeks. Uh, I talked to Diane today, and probably uh, March 1st, the call, the airfare for FDIC will be out there. And um, just you know, I know they're planning a lot of stuff for Bobby, so I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to it, and look forward to seeing you, brother. And I'm looking forward to being there as well. It's always an honor to be there and to have to have my name among the FDIC names and presenters is just truly humbling and something I'll never take for granted. And I want to thank you, gentlemen, for your friendship and all you've done to inspire me and help me over the years. You you both mean the world to me. And to be on your program is, is truly an honor. So thank you. And... Um, I have two closing quotes, if I may, and I'd like to leave the listeners with this, and it's how I end my podcast all the time. I'd like to remind you all that developing and displaying and maintaining a professional reputation is the duty and responsibility of all firefighters, paid or volunteer. 
And finally, the bottom line, after all is said and done, folks, it's 2023. Our residents are owed professional service delivered by professional firefighters representing a professional organization. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you, brother. Godspeed. Yeah, Tom, hey, man, thank, well, thank you very much. And right back at you, man. Um, right back at you, brother. I can't, I can't tell you what a great job you did. Um, you, you've upheld, I think, the, not only the, the strength of your message, um, but the passion of it is pretty cool. And I know that's going to fire some folks up. So, you know, great job. And I look forward to seeing you at FDIC, brother, and uh, breaking bread and doing all the things we do. And, um, you know, Mike, um, one thing that Tom said there, and I know that you and I say it all the time in a different way, but we, we've, we're stipulating volunteer fire service right now because there are particular challenges and there's particular structure with that. But what you and I have always articulated to whoever is sitting in front of us in class is there is just a reality to what's true about you. You're either a firefighter or you're not. Now, whatever else you put in front of it is interesting. You know, if you're an urban firefighter, a rural firefighter, volunteer, paid on call, all that other stuff. That's all interesting and, you know, and, and it's cool. And there's neat things about every one of those um, kind of descriptives. But when you get right down to it, you're either a firefighter or you're not. And I'll tell you what, the listeners to this program could not have come away with any other conclusion than what you just listened to with Tom Merrill is that cat is a firefighter, man. And not only a firefighter, he's a leader of firefighters. So, Michael, what a blessing. Man, that was, that was, in, that was really enjoyable. Amen, brother. It was a great show and a lot of good times. So uh, to the brothers and sisters out there listening live or listening uh, on a podcast while you're working out or whatever else, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for getting better. God bless you. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at FDIC. Thank you. God bless everybody. I'm going to take us out, Michael.